Okay, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 30, almost done uh, the first half of this epic uh, story that covers a lot of ground. And David, when we last kind of left our, our hero, David had been rescued by God from a seemingly impossible situation. Israel were, was gathering their forces to the north because the Philistines were gathering all their forces at Aphek and were going to march, meet the Israelites in battle, wipe them out. But if you remember, David had ingratiated himself to the Philistines and the king Achish, and he was in a situation where he was either going to have to fight against God's people, his own kin, or somehow betray Achish, but then die because he's going to be surrounded by Philistines. And through this amazing providential feat, uh, God gets him removed from the battlefield. He's actually sent back by Achish to Ziklag down at the bottom. So David is turned away, and the story in, uh, kind of picks up right away in chapter 30, where we read that David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now, this is important for context. The distance is about 55 miles. They cover that in three days. That's a significant um, expenditure of energy. I like to think that this journey on foot with his men gives David lots of time to think about and reflect on what just happened. And the text doesn't tell us, but I do wonder if David began to realize, did God just get me out of an impossible situation? Like, wow, maybe he's just beginning to trace the hand of God in the circumstances that caused the Philistine commanders to pressure Achish to get him away from the battlefield. And if that's true, if David is beginning to either suspect or become aware of God's providential redirection in his life, it makes what happens next even more dramatic. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone in it, both young and old. They, kill, they killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. Verse 3, And when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and all their wives and sons and daughters taken captive and removed. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives were captured, Ahoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal at Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. So David goes down to Ziklag, but it's been razed to the ground. And all of these men's family, including David's and their children, have been taken captive by the Amalekites who show up in 1 Samuel pretty consistently as the symbol for a culture, a culture that is anti-God, anti-life, that is murderous, uh, kind of like the worst, kind of bullies on steroids. Verses 1 to 6 could easily be described as the absolute worst day in David's life. I don't know um, if you think about it. Maybe this is too morbid. Uh, we've all had bad days. We've all had difficult days. At some point in your life, there is the worst day of your life. It's inevitable. You will go through the worst day of your life. Maybe it's behind you. Maybe it's in front of you. But when you look at David's overall story, this might be the worst one, especially when he's just beginning maybe to realize 
God, save me from this threat. Maybe in redirecting me down to Ziklag, God was trying to save me, and then on the horizon, it's just a plume of smoke, black smoke. And as him and his men get closer and closer, their worst fears are realized. The things most precious to them, their home has been destroyed, and the, thing, the people most precious to them have been removed. It's a scene of utter desolation, so much so that he and his men break down crying, and the men very quickly begin to turn on David and basically say, you did this. You idiot. You were the one who pulled us over here. You were the one who aligned us with Achish. We gave our hearts to you. We gave our allegiance to you. And look where it got us. God is worse than nothing. And they are talking about stoning him, which is, as it sounds, a terrible way to die. You basically are just pelted with large stones until you succumb to head trauma or interior injuries. Before we move on to David's response, I want you to notice what David did in verse 4. It's really, really important. David leads his men in grieving a monumental loss. When he comes upon the scene of desolation, he gives himself and his men time to grieve. And we know there's a lot of time because these 600 hardened warrior men cry so hard and for so long, the scripture says they wept aloud until they didn't have time to weep. So this wasn't like, this was crying, a mixture of anger and grief and rage. And it happens who knows for how long? Hours maybe. And they exhaust themselves in grief. They grieve and weep until they have nothing left in their emotional tank. There's an English pastor, Frederick Robertson, who said, never does a man know the force that is in him until a mighty affection or grief has humanized his soul. That's what we're seeing happen here. This is a um, devastating low point for David and his men. But it's important to recognize the Bible presents the story to show us that there actually is no shame in grief. We're supposed to see David's response and his men's response as absolutely appropriate to the situation. There's no weakness in mourning. See, if we don't grieve something, if we don't uh, grieve the loss of something, then what that means is we either didn't really care about it or we're pretending that we didn't care about it that much. And both of those responses are unhealthy because real love, to really love something and then to lose it, whether it's something small or big, you know, the grief scales, but real love grieves loss. You are not more spiritual if you can face loss ambivalently, if you can kind of see what, you can have the desolation sweep over you and think, well, it is what it is. That's not a spiritual response. A spiritual response is what we see David modeling here, which is to allow the grief to hit him fully and deeply. Remaining detached or trying to numb ourselves, even sometimes, you know, I, I've done this. You, you kind of pick up in some church cultures and contexts. It's like 
you know, there's a very quick pivot to like, I'm sad, like, oh, but like the joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm sad, but like, oh, God's going to work all things for good. And those are truths, but when they're presented too quickly to the point of grief, they're, um, they're often a well-intentioned but artificial way of kind of papering over the grief. And they have much more to do with the person sharing those truths with us not being able to actually sit with us in grief and experience that grief alongside us. And it's more about their discomfort than actually offering us comfort. Jesus wept. Many times in his ministry, actually. Jesus was not a stoic. He didn't move through life emotionally unfazed. He allowed grief to take hold of him, and then he brought it into the presence of God as Father. He didn't deny loss and hurt and betrayal and anger and anxiety and worry. He didn't um, minimize it. He didn't try and bypass it by just very quickly reminding himself, oh, no, no need to get upset, right? I mean, this is very classic in the Lazarus story. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, finds out that he's been dead for three days. It says Jesus wept. And people around are like, wow, look at how much Jesus loved this guy. Because it wasn't just like a, he wept for some time, maybe minutes. Maybe they felt like a long time, but five, 10, 15 minutes. Is Jesus being silly? That's silly, Jesus. Come on, don't cry. You're going to raise a guy from the dead in a few moments. But Jesus is showing us, and we see here in this passage, that grief is part of a good and godly response to something that's actually valuable being lost to us. Jesus grieved, he wept, he mourned, and this passage in 1 Samuel and the example of Jesus should reinforce in a very strong and deep way that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are trying to apprentice your life off of Jesus, you are trying to learn what it means to make Jesus your Lord and Savior in every area of your life, what that will mean is to grow into the kind of person who fully and deeply grieves. After a soul-emptying session of crying and grieving, again, David's men turn on him, but then we read these words. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Some translations will say, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We're not given details. But David's entire world has collapsed in on himself, and now there's a ring of warriors who want him dead, who a few hours ago were his comrade in arms, ready to go and die for him. Now they want him to die as a scapegoat for them and their uh, anger and pain. At his lowest point, David turns to God. And this is a reminder this has not happened for at least 16 months, a year and four months while David has been in Philistia, in Ziklag, in the land of the Philistines. This is the first time we get any wind of David turning towards God. It's a turning point in the chapter. It's a turning point in David's life. And in his sincere turning to God, David actually is reminded by God who God is in his life. But David is also reminded who he is called to be, who he is in God. 
God doesn't just reveal himself to David. God reveals David to himself. And he reminds David that he is the anointed king to be in Israel. We don't know where David's head and heart space was at fully, but there was definitely a movement away from his calling and saying, I'm going to kind of reinvent my life over here in um, the land of the Philistines. And in this turning to God moment, God says, this is who I am, David. This is who you are. And the details of that exchange are not given to us. But what we see is the fruit of this revelation show up in the rest of the events of chapter 30. From this point on, this is... um, I'm going to date myself. Do you guys remember... uh, I don't know if it was WrestleMania 17, Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man Randy Savage. And Randy Savage had Hogan in the sleeper hold after like 22 minutes of battling and gets Hogan in the sleeper hold. And you'd lift the arm three times. And if there was three drops, they'd call it. It was a submission. And they drop the arm once and Hogan's arm goes down. And the crowd is just like, look, you can see kids tearing up in the background. And it's just like a traumatic experience. And then the arm goes up the second time and it drops it. And then the arm goes up the third time. And then the ref drops it. And then Hogan does one of these. And he stands up, and it's like this absolutely amazing comeback, and he stands up, and the crowd goes crazy, and everyone gets behind uh, the Hulkster, and Hulkamania runs wild, and he overcomes Randy Savage, and it becomes a monumental turning point in my own life. These are, this is kind of like this moment. David turns to God, and he is strengthened at his lowest. His life is bottomed out. And I'm sure the enemy of David's soul was thinking, it's over. And David turns to God and God strengthens David. And he says, he reminds David who he is as the Lord his God and he reminds David who he is as the anointed king to be. David begins seeking God. Sorry, verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. That's a mechanism by which uh, the priests at that time were able to discern the will of God. Uh, Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? First of all, notice the first thing that that, uh, David does after he's turned to God. He's now going to submit himself to God's will. And he starts seeking not just God, but God's will. And this is meant to parallel what Saul didn't do in the last chapter. Saul technically was trying to get... um, guidance from God, but God was shutting him out because for Saul, it was just about preservation. But David is now seeking God the right way, not through a medium, not through a a suspect spiritual practice, but through the priest and through the ephod. And look at the question that he asks. Shall I pursue this raiding party? Most of us wouldn't even ask the question. We would just presume, yep, it's God's will. But David is so humbled. He's not even assuming that. And he's willing for God to say, not today. And that is a very loud way of David saying, I know what my will is to do in this situation. But look at what pursuing my will has gotten me. God, do you want me to go after these evildoers and rescue what's been lost to me? And part of that question is David is willing for God to say, no. 
Pursue them, God says. Which is crazy because David has not consulted with God for a year and a half. So if God was going to be petty, if God was going to be small, if God was going to say, oh, oh, look who it is. What's the name again? Duke, Duck, oh, David, that's right. I'd almost forgotten because you've ghosted me for a year and a half. This is the time for God to do it. But God doesn't. Because the Lord is slow to anger. He is quick to extend mercy and grace. And He says to David, pursue them. And you're going to overtake them. And you're going to succeed in the rescue. Verse 9, David and his 600 men with him came to the Basor Valley where some stayed behind because 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. They had gone three days, 55 miles, come upon desolation, emptied themselves emotionally with crying. Now they're in hot pursuit. A third of his men, there were 600, a third of them are like, we're tapped out. We can't even do this. This is our wives. These are our children. We can't even run on adrenaline anymore. And David lets them rest. Now, earlier when the army was fighting for King Saul and trying to go after the Philistines, Saul had said, Oh, everyone's going to fight for me. I don't care how tired you are. Oh, you think you're tired? I'm going to impose a fast until my army does what I want it to do and accomplishes my victory. Here, David says, you guys are too tired to go on? No problem. You stay here and rest. David extends mercy. He lets them rest. We're we're starting to see David operate the way a king should operate. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in a field, brought him to David. They gave him water and food to drink. He ate and was revived. He hadn't eaten any food or drink, uh, or drunk any water for three days and three nights. This is a good Samaritan moment here. This is a nobody. Leave the guy for dead on the side of the road. They have way more important things to do. David stops, gives him attention, gives him care. David provides mercy and care for an insignificant life. Then they find out that this guy is an Egyptian. He was a slave to one of the Amalekites. And he says, my master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. Which again is a not so subtle clue on how the Amalekites looked at human life. Life is cheap. Once, once people become useless to you, once they no longer serve a purpose, just leave them to die. It's one of the characteristics of an anti-God culture is when life is cheap and when life is disposable, you know you're kind of dealing with an Amalekite culture. And David sees something different. He says, I have no reason to stop for you. We have no reason to halt this on your account, but I'm going to. And then God blesses that by this uh, uh, Egyptian saying, we raided the Negev. And some territory belonging to Judah. And we, I was a part of the kind of this group that burned Ziklag. And David, you might have thought, would respond by saying, like, oh, you're dead. Slit his throat right there. You were the ones? Like, you were a part of this? I don't even care how, whether you did it uh, by force or not. Like, you, you still participated? You're dead. No. He says, can you lead me down to this raiding party? And this guy naturally is sort of like, uh, you swear to me that you won't kill me, and I'll do that. But he realizes all these men are seeking vengeance for what has happened that he was a part of. But David gives him his word. He gives mercy to an enemy and actually enlists his enemy to help him. Verse 16, 
The Egyptian led David down, and there they were scattered over the countryside. These were the Amalekites. They were eating and drinking. They're like, oh, we're so rich. We, we just walked into Ziklag with no resistance. Amazing. And then in verse 17, David fought the Amalekites from dusk until evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled, meaning most of them were killed, but like 400 got away. These were only 400 men fighting with David. So God gives him an incredible victory over the Amalekites. Verse 18, David recovered everything that the Amalekites had taken. So notice that David frees the captives. The wives and the children are now freed, having been um, taken and enslaved by the enemy. And then in verse 19, we read, actually nothing was missing. Young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken, David brought everything back. So David redeems and restores what was lost to him, what was lost to his men. And then he took these extras that the Amalekites had, the flocks and the herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, oh, well, this is David's plunder. 21, then David came to the 200 men. So they go back, they come back to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Basor Valley. And they came out to meet David and the soldiers who were with him. As David and his men approached, they asked them how they were. Like, wow, they're seeing all, everything recovered. Like, what happened? But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, meaning the people who went into war, said, whoa, 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 whoa. Because they did not go out with us, we're not going to share the plunder with them, right? Like, they stayed back. They were too tired to fight. We were tired too, but we went into battle. We secured this. So yeah, we're coming back. They can, like, take their wife and their children, but they don't get any of the plunder. We earned it. They didn't. So this is like a meritocracy. It's a very harsh, ungenerous response. And David in verse 23 replies, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. Isn't that amazing? David sees everything as a gift from God. He doesn't say, this is my plunder. I'll decide what happens to it. Thank you very much. He says, it's God's. So neither you nor I get to decide who's worthy of it. God has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of the man who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute, meaning a law, and an ordinance for all of Israel from that day to this. That's a kingly generosity. David says, I did secure this plunder. These 200 didn't really lift a finger to help in that. But they're going to benefit from my victory. They're going to be enriched, even though they didn't earn it. Then verse 26, when David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here's a gift to you. So you see David distributing these gifts now, not just to people who weren't a part of his 600-person crew, but throughout all of Israel. And then the next through, uh, the closing verses, is just this litany of regions and areas where David is just distributing this um, the blessing of uh, these uh, material possessions to all of Israel. And as the chapter closes, 
David looks more and more like a king. He's returning to himself. It's, it's, before he's the king, it's the return of the king. It's the return of someone who realizes, oh, this is who God has made me to be. And he starts living into it step by step. Saul had ruled or had tried to secure his rule by taking, taking even from God's people. And David, we're seeing, starts securing his authority and his rule by giving. It is an amazing comeback story, right up there with Hulk Hogan, the Macho Man Randy Savage. It's an amazing example of a spirit-empowered response, faithful leadership. It's a good news story. And it literally is a good news story because I want to show you something. Details in the Bible matter. And this text denote, sorry, this text makes us note a particular place where these 200 men are invited to rest. The name of the valley, or depending on your translation, it might say a, a wadi is Besor. This is the Hebrew uh, word Besor. It has a verb and it has a noun, derivative. The verb is, um, the best translation is sort of like glad tidings. And it relates to the act of removing covers in order to expose something good within. And so it became associated with uh, childbirth. That when you would announce or show your child for the first time, you'd say, look at this. This is good news. Glad tidings. And great joy. Because there's a boy. There's a girl. But it's verb is a derivative Sorry, the verb, um, the verb derivation, it actually doesn't mean glad tidings. It's, it tends to be used, connected with this idea of childbirth, as a place of the flesh. So where does the place of the flesh, enfleshment, overlap with a place of glad tidings or good news? Um overlap with the theme of kingship. Bethlehem. Yeah. A manger in Bethlehem. And what we're seeing here is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do, not simply for Israel, but on a cosmic level for all who trust in Him. Jesus is going to seek God and God's will perfectly. He is going to extend mercy. He's going to offer us eternal rest. He is the good Samaritan who's going to provide care for the rejected and the despised and those which the world says they're youth useless, they're dead to us, leave them to die on the side of the road. Jesus is going to extend mercy, even mercy to his enemies. He's going to free the captives that have been taken hostage by the enemy. He's going to redeem what is lost. He's going to exhibit a kingly generosity. And it's not going to be based on merit, where you have to earn it. It's going to be based on grace. And he's going to distribute his gifts, the gifts of his spirit, spiritual gifts, the gifts of the fruit of the spirit, and ultimately the gift of eternal life to all of his people. Like all of the stories in the Old Testament, this one has a deeper meaning than to just have us kind of go, yes, David's on the comeback trail, amazing. 
There's things we can learn from that and from this whole chapter, just from looking at it through the point of view of David. But most fundamentally, it's meant to point us towards our need for Jesus and to show us how great the coming king is going to be. Not David the coming king, the coming capital K, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Because our hope, the Old Testament says, doesn't lie with an earthly ruler or politician or uh, earthly priest or leader. The great hope lies in the true and better king coming, and that is King Jesus. So if you are a Christian today, then hear this message as a summons to follow Jesus more faithfully with eagerness and passion and intention. And if you've never come to the end of yourself like David did, you've never come to a place where you say, I've got nothing left and I just need to turn to God, then I want you to hear this message as a summons to follow Jesus. Not just to like, oh yeah, I kind of believe that stuff. I mean like, strengthening yourself in Jesus, turning your life as best you know how over to him and saying, I don't know what it means, Jesus, but can you show me how to live for you now? I don't want to live for myself anymore, for my family, for wealth, fame, riches, whatever I have, whatever's been on the throne of my heart, it's gotten me nowhere. I want to live for you now. Give him your heart today. Strengthen yourself and him and then be prepared because he is going to open up new possibilities and new hope into your life both now and forever let's pray jesus you are our king we celebrate the amazing things that you have done that you are doing that you will do in our life in the lives of your people in David, in Christians on the other side of the world right now, in this church, in this community. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in our lives here today. We love you, we surrender to you. And we praise and worship you this morning. Amen.